So our next guest is not only the author of a book we both can't wait to read, Decolonizing Wellness. And I mean, doesn't that title alone make you want to find out what is in there? But is someone who also talks specifically to those individuals who are at the intersection of BIPOC and LGBTQ identities. When you think about bodies, beauty, and self-care, that's often a group that gets lost, not only in popular consciousness, but also in media portrayals of what is considered desirable or even attractive. And when you're struggling to be seen or fit in or even just survive, this lack of acknowledgement can be devastating. I'm so excited that this conversation will be stacked with one that we have with Saya B, where we talk about those identities and the power of empathy to see one another as full human beings. But this one with Dahlia Kinsey was yet again one of those conversations that we didn't want to see end. And each of us, I know you did, I know I did, walked away with different ways to think about not only our own bodies, but what we put in them. And how we interact with those around us with regards to wellness. And I'm really thinking in particular about kids and ways in which we can better support and understand the struggle of marginalized individuals when it comes to preconceived notions of health and beauty. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts who are also moms of kids whose health we care about, Sarah and me, Sasha. Can you introduce yourself for our audience, please? Yes. My name is Dahlia Kinsey. I am a registered dietitian and an inclusive wellness specialist. I'm the author of Decolonizing Wellness, and I should probably work on my intros since I'm going to be talking about my book a lot, but that's me in a nutshell. You'll know me more at the end of our chat here. I love it. I'm so excited to talk about your book and about the process that you've been through both personally and then also in researching and putting this book out. But one of the things that really struck me to set a baseline level for this conversation is what I read, which said that many representatives of the increasingly bo uh, popular body positivity movement actually add to the body image concerns of queer people of color by emphasizing cisgender, heteronormative and Eurocentric standards of beauty. And I would love to pause and stop to reflect on what this means. Because for example, personally, my whole life growing up with a mom who was actually, I hope she's not listening, but she was really critical about my appearance all the time. And it led me to think that I was not good enough for a long, long time. But I think about, well, what was she and what was I comparing myself to? And sure, it was like the magazines and magazines that in hindsight reflect the things that you said, cisgender, heteronormative. Eurocentric standards of beauty. So can we just specifically talk about these unhealthy, unhelpful standards of beauty that you're referring to that we should start all noticing around us? Yeah. And I want to add before you answer, because as the mom of like multiracial kids who have already made comments, you know, in elementary school and younger about like not fitting in due to how they look, you know, I would also love as you're answering to talk about how early this can show up, you know, and how parents might be playing a role in this, like Sarah's story about her mom as well. I love this question because for me, I was born in the very early eighties. So when I was a kid, whenever you opened a magazine, if you saw somebody glamorous or someone who looked healthy, that's in air quotes, because how does one look healthy? They were always white. They almost always had straight hair. Even curly hair wasn't in style. And they always were able-bodied. 
They had smooth skin, lots of little things that you wouldn't think of as teaching you a standard, but in real life, how many people look like that? How many people have perfect skin? How many people don't have any gray hair? I never remember seeing anyone with gray hair presented as this person is well, and this person is presenting a look that you should aspire to. You only saw thin to maybe kind of healthy looking as in still straight size. So under plus sizes for sure. And even in plus size fashion, you notice that the body types are pretty consistent, flat belly, busty hourglass type of figure. Even when it's not stated explicitly, when you see these images all the time as the only ones that are worthy photographing, you get the message that this is what's valued. And if you don't look like that, you're not worth looking at, you're not worth paying attention to. And it's incredible how much of a difference what we constantly see presented as attractive, how that influences what you later will believe is your default attraction, that that was inborn, that that was natural. And I've even noticed in myself, now that we're finally seeing images in the United States of all these super cute cis Asian men, that it's lack of exposure and lack of seeing bodies presented in the same light. Because every time I would see a person of color photographed, the makeup looked peculiar, probably because the makeup artist had never put makeup on a person of color. Their hair looked funky because again, they probably hadn't done ethnic, that's in air quotes, hair since they went to school. And it just didn't compare at all. And only now that we see people demanding equal access to certain materials, even models, that you start seeing apples and apples when you look at editorial images of people who are not white. And beyond that, the layers are still there with the ableism and the sizeism. I see all the time in extremely small children. So it could be as young as second grade, people already wondering if their body is acceptable and how they can make sure it's acceptable. Even in the way adults talk to children about food, you can hear the fear of being in a bigger body spilling out of the adults onto the children and the children are still growing and they have no reason to be worried about controlling their body size, but that is introduced to them in everything that adults say about food. What's a good food? What's a bad food? What's a sometime food? What's a food that you should be afraid of? So it starts extremely young. I remember starting to feel like there was something wrong with my appearance, not from a body weight perspective, but from a complexion and hair texture perspective in kindergarten. Because prior to that point, I really hadn't been shown how much people preferred fair skin biracial kids versus dark skin black kids. And yeah, the concept of needing to be safe and needing to be cautious in public places, especially where there were white people, because you just have to be careful if you hope to survive your childhood, that had already started to be drilled into me. But the idea that everything 
that comes to me naturally, even how my hair grows out of my scalp is not good enough or not acceptable. That wasn't on my radar until kindergarten, but you learn the lesson pretty quickly because everyone around you is reinforcing it. And that's people of color. That's white people. That's the media. That's friends. That's family. That's loved ones. I just think about how, when you were talking about, especially parents and parents placing their food story and food traumas and ideals of what is healthy, right. Or what is beautiful on their kids. Right. And I like sort of juxtapose that with my own life of doing ballet for so long and what was told to me and how I was so thankful that my parents did not say that same thing at home, but I can't imagine, you know, being in kindergarten and feeling that weight of feeling like that, how you are naturally is not good enough. You know, I want to talk a little bit to Sarah's earlier quote that she read from your book, you know, which I was so excited by the way to read, but it really sounds like your target audience is at that intersection of, you know, the BIPOC and LGBTQ identities. So, you know, I know you talked a little bit about your own childhood, but what are those extra challenges that you see that really affect body acceptance and self-care for queer people of color? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like right before the call, I, when Sarah asked how I was doing, I was trying to decide... <laughs> how much to unload, which is the question these days. And I was talking about my distress over all the black folks in my life that I've interacted with in the last week or so that because of, I won't even dignify this person and mention their name, but there was a super homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic comedy special recently that aired on Netflix. And there's a lot of kerfuffle about that, especially in the black community, because this is a black person. And these were loved ones. These are people I trust people I'm friends with people that know that I'm queer who are always affirming that, Oh yeah, you do you be proud about your identity, whatever, but who disclose this week that they still think that people decide to be gay or something happens and you're exposed to too much gay propaganda that may or may not come from the man that wants to somehow destroy the black family because somehow queerness is the root of all evil and just one more thing that the black community has to overcome and nothing about these opinions are unique. I have heard this a million times in lots of different forms from different particular religious groups within the black community and the black community in general. But what is ridiculous is people can make it through all of my other filters and I still don't ever know when I'm going to basically be triggered or bothered by something like that. Like it's everywhere. So that's a chronic problem. If somebody finally gets to a point where, you know, they've accepted that their skin color is perfectly acceptable. Their hair texture is fine. The way they speak is fine. They don't need to suppress their accent. They can just be themselves. And they find people that affirm their racialized identity well, then the next issue is, is now everyone going to tell you you're an abomination because you're queer. And if you 
don't feel comfortable being seen as the gender you're assigned at birth? How much of a challenge is that going to be to communicate in your community? And how much will you be ridiculed for that or told that it's okay that you're gay, but it's not okay to tell anyone and it's not okay to be in relationships. We understand that some people have this challenge or thorn in their flesh they have to overcome, but you know, you should suppress it because it's fundamentally evil and unacceptable. How is that going to affect your ability to accept yourself, to set healthy boundaries when you are dating, when you realize, you know, it doesn't make sense that I'm, it's okay to be gay, but not okay for me to love anybody, which is essentially the message that the church sends people very often how are you going to get comfortable in a body that starts to change even as you move through puberty and maybe becomes more matronly beyond puberty? Apparently your body starts getting matronly around 35 in a lot of cases, whether or not you have children. I should get my walker out now. I mean, (laughs) I didn't know a lot of the things that change about the female body because people don't talk about the female body nearly enough. And they certainly didn't in the nineties and the early two thousands, that there are a lot of things that I associated with childbirth that I thought, oh, this happens to, you know, femme or people with vaginas who have wombs. This happens to them after they have children. It will not happen to this body. And incorrect, some things are just a matter of time. So as the body changes and you start to feel so uncomfortable because it doesn't match what the world around you presents as gender identity that you connect to, that can cause so much distress and trigger a lot of disordered eating as you try to keep your body familiar. But in a lot of ways, the rules about what is a mask body, what is a femme body, are at the root of this problem too, because true gender identity is what it is at birth. But then there's a lot of things around that. Like who says that everyone with breasts is she, her, who says that everyone who has their sexual organs outside of their body is he, who says that. And so, so much of what we're trying to balance here is who am I versus Who was I socialized to be? Who am I really? What do I really want? And how do I start making decisions that feel right for me when my entire life I've been trained to verify that what I naturally feel compelled to do is acceptable and not going to put me in danger and not going to get me ridiculed, humiliated, attacked. That's the real challenge is getting comfortable enough to figure out what is right for you. I love that. Because I think that's part of the reason I've gone into the field that I have with life coaching and how do we make people feel like they're thriving. But so much of that is this introspection and this idea of, you know, who am I and owning that. So I think with what you were just talking about, you're talking about the importance of tuning into our own bodies. And I love that you also mentioned the intersection of like knowing ourselves, but also always checking with others to see if that's right and how that connects with food and the interplay with our bodies and the way we like feed ourselves and what the effect of that is as our bodies change. But I've always believed to some degree, looking at my kids, for example, that they know, we all know what our bodies need. You know, one of my kids is prone to inflammation and hates meat. The other loves veggies and fruits and the other is the exact opposite. I feel like though, as part of that process almost of knowing ourselves, but then checking if we're acceptable with others, we learn to not listen. 
and not trust that our intuition is correct. So can you help guide us in maybe understanding how we can all listen to our bodies a little bit better? Is there like a thing you can share with us about that? Yeah, I think one of the most crucial things is trying to be more aware of why you're making food decisions. And for some people, what works really well is journaling around that, around mealtime. If you notice that you feel hungry once it becomes a certain time and you're hungry at exactly the same time every day, Just note that because no one is hungry at the same time every day. You can train yourself to start salivating and wanting to eat at a certain time, maybe because for so long you haven't been allowed to eat whenever you want. So like if you're a kid, that's a real problem. I only learned recently that in some countries, kids are actually allowed to go to the bathroom at school whenever they want. I didn't know that was a thing. Even the concept of having to get permission from a teacher to relieve yourself or permission from a teacher to feed yourself. This is not natural. Obviously your body doesn't really care about the bell schedule at your school, nor does it care about whether or not your boss hates watching people chew in meetings. Hopefully that's less of an issue now if your meetings are remote, but over time, your body does what it can to just make this situation that it's in work. But Typically, your energy is going to shift from day to day. Like you can feel that if you are super active one day and another day, you're mostly in bed watching Netflix, recovering from the week. It doesn't make sense to believe you would need exactly the same amount of food. So if you just have it in your head that, oh, I'm only going to eat this amount of calories because somebody told me somewhere this is the right amount of calories for my height, really question that. And try and sense, are you hungry for more? Do you feel like you don't want that much? Are you stopping eating at a certain time of day because you were told to, but you're actually really famished? Just paying attention to why you're eating when you're eating. And if you are actually eating because you're feeling hungry, good for you. You're in... (laughs) the minority. Usually people eat for a million different reasons, but very rarely do we only eat in response to hunger. And that's not to say that it isn't also natural to sometimes eat for other reasons, because of course, like sometimes people eat to celebrate, you eat just because something looked good, but habitually, if you are not responding to your own hunger cues, that is a habit that spills over into other areas of your life. If you just keep on suppressing and ignoring the hunger, what else are you suppressing and ignoring? How else do you not honor what your body is telling you on a daily basis? I just, like, as you were talking about that, I was thinking back to my big law firm associate days and sitting at my desk for like eight hours because I had to finish this brief and like literally, you know, just going as long as I could without eating because I was under this time crunch. And then to your point about like, what else are you suppressing? Cause you're basically trying to shut down all of your sort of natural body reactions. You can focus on this work and how unhealthy that is, you know, in retrospect, like I'm saying these words, I'm like, I can't believe I did that, but I totally did that for years. And then I was also thinking about when you were talking about, you know, 
timing of eating and all of that. And also to your earlier point about not knowing about what, you know, how the female body has not been talked about a lot. I've been recently reading and trying to understand a lot more around menstrual cycle and how, you know, your food intake shifts and how your exercise and your energy shifts and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm 44 years old. I cannot believe I like have really not examined this in my own life until now. Right. And so like days when I really want to exercise a lot or, or I'm able to, or I'm hungrier, you know, versus days where I'm tired and like, what phase am I in? And I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that we aren't taught this like very early. And this isn't a phrase, you know, something that's discussed by all women, you know, in that way, it's totally fascinating. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because what's focused on in a culture really tells you what or who was important in that culture. And so it's really messed up that even other cis women don't teach these things to young girls, but it's absolutely not a surprise. It's not a surprise that in a misogynistic paternalistic culture, Nobody gives a crap about how the female body changes. And I'd heard from other like senior women that people don't even make clothes for a woman of a certain age. And I thought she's being paranoid. Like, what is she talking about? I see all these frumpy clothes. (laughs) clothes that I assumed were for people her age, but as your body changes, you do notice that like as hips get broader and the body changes, people really don't. They pretty much expect for you to just like stop talking, just crawl into a corner and die. Stop having opinions. Once you're no longer available to be used by a male centered society that you live in. And then your option is to try and find other ways to make yourself useful. So you may not feel like you have time to start sharing the wisdom that you have taken in with the younger femme people around you. So it's really, really interesting. And at the job, I'm sure that you were under tremendous pressure to not eat. I wonder how much people would have assumed about you if they saw you kept taking breaks to feed yourself. I don't think it would have been positive. And there's something really wrong with that. But that doesn't mean we are wrong as an individual for responding to the situation we're in. We're trying to survive these unnatural environments that we have to function in, that don't value femme people, that don't value people who take care of themselves. The working class is meant to use their body to serve the interests of people who are not working class. And so behaviors that are praised and well-to-do people, like you hear all the time, oh, people just took time to travel and they just took time, you know, to just really enjoy Bali or wherever. And they didn't work for a couple of years. That's no problem if you're well-to-do. If somebody who's working class says that, well, you are a piece of trash. You're lazy, good for nothing trash. And you're even a bad person if you have the nerve to take a lunch break when they're deadlines. Totally. I'm so glad you said that because I know you said it was about the misogynistic culture too, but I think we have to layer capitalism on top of that because it is about so much of the income and ability and this system that affects performance and output It reminded me of the conversation that I've had with my husband, which is I refuse to submit my being to the notion that my value 
as a woman has decreased now that I no longer want to push a child out of my vagina. Like I want to be the village elder. I want to do things that will continue to increase my worth. And I'm almost leaning into my Asian, like matriarch kind of character because I don't believe in this system that shuns women. And I feel like part of my job and what I've modeled for my kids before we came to this stage with this project that Bisasha and I have been working on has been this idea of cultivating time affluence as much as possible for my children. Misasha, when you were talking earlier about this idea of reflecting and taking time to notice when, you know, some days you just want to work out more. Well, if your schedule is jam packed, like we're expected to have in this society, you don't have the time to listen and give your body what it needs. If you need to go for a run that day, if you need to, you know, have a nap for 20 minutes, if you need to bake that cookie, because you really just need a freaking dose of sugar to get you going, you know? And so I, really appreciate all that both of you shared right now. It's given me a lot of thoughts around that. That's such an excellent point. And I love the concept of time affluence. I hadn't heard it phrased that way before, but that really is something that capitalism robs you of. And so, so many people are struggling to hear themselves and you can see where school is training for you to not be the master of your day And for your own physical needs to not be a priority versus the schedule of the institution that you're working in. And you see that because some bodies are valued more than others, in addition to the classism issue, that it's going to be even more encouraged for you to suppress your needs if you are a person who feels you have to work to prove that you're valuable. That like, yes, I'm gay, but look at all this productivity. I'm still valuable. Or yes, I'm a femme presenting person, but look at all this other value I bring to the table. The idea that you have to hustle to prove your worth is so toxic. And when you don't pause, you can't hear what you need. I mean, it usually takes 20 minutes, 25 minutes to feel that you're not hungry anymore. I don't know a lot of people of color that get 25 minutes for lunch. If you have a 30 minute lunch, you got to get to wherever you're eating lunch. You know, who gets a full 25 minutes to just relax and eat and feel whether or not they're satisfied and how many people who even work in an office setting take lunch without continuing to answer emails. How will you hear what your body needs if there's no time? And I think the pandemic has been really enlightening for a lot of people. So many people didn't realize how disconnected they were from what they actually needed, how happy or unhappy they were in relationships and working relationships, any kind of relationship until they had the time, the space and the quiet that the pandemic forced on us to realize where they really stood for myself too, for sure. I did not realize how burned out I was with dealing with the constant microaggressions and racism in my field and how I still was having trouble processing anger and frustration because I hadn't fully felt my feelings because I'd been taught so effectively that I'm not allowed to feel my feelings related to being treated poorly because of my identities that aren't celebrated by this 
toxic culture I live in. You're not allowed to be mad about it. You're not allowed to talk about it because it's considered more rude to bring it up than to actually be the person perpetrating harm culturally, you know, that's considered more acceptable, which I know you know this because you help people work with that. And it's been really interesting seeing how many people see themselves as allies, but are absolutely not capable of hearing that anything they've done has created harm. And that does not (laughs) make you an ally. Uh, That makes you someone that I need to stay away from because you're dangerous for my well-being. And the way the culture set up here and the emphasis on productivity for working class bodies, people are constantly blaming the individual for poor health outcomes and ignoring the fact that microaggressions and constantly being in this fear state, this high anxiety state, that this toxic culture, this white supremacy-based culture creates in people can explain a number of health disparities, but nobody wants to deal with that. Instead, people keep asking, how can we help these poor brown people assimilate more so they can enjoy fabulous health like the rest of us? Like you got to get rid of the white supremacy boo-boo and then we'll see the gap closing. It's not about the kale. That actually brings me to the kale kind of, because although it's not about it, I want to go back because so much of what you said is so important and powerful. And I really appreciate that. And a couple of times you've been talking about sort of the school setting or, you know, what is being taught to us at like an early age. And, you know, also we touched on sort of parents and the role that parents play. And so I was just reading this thing and a disclaimer, like I'm not on social media, but I read about social media sometimes, which I know is really weird. I get it. But, you know, this is also for my own mental health in a lot of ways, but I read this great article about the sometimes, you know, unintentional, maybe sometimes probably intentional role of white food and wellness influencers and really popularizing diet culture early on, right? Through this concept of division of responsibility, which I had to then Google, but it's when sort of parents decide what to serve their kids in this way. And so it sounds like it's mostly for younger kids and this, the theory is, I guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that they decide what to serve their kids. So their kids grow up eating this whole bounty of, among other things, kale and have these like super healthy in air quotes diets, right? But in this article, the writer notes that many of these primary kid food influencers on Instagram are really leaning into this concept, right? And her words were so great that I wanted to quote them, at least all the mainstream ones who are focused on vaguely crunchy, neurotic white moms and notes, you know, something happens when we pair this principle of parents decide what to serve with aspirational rainbows of produce, you know, arranged on pristine white backgrounds. And, you know, this concept originally was supposed to be, I guess, the anti-diet way to feed kids. But on Instagram, at least, this has turned really into diet culture, you know? And so I would love to hear your thoughts about you know, we've got these kid, white kid food influencers with this, you know, produce model, but what's the message they're sending? How are they continuing to sort of perpetuate this diet culture? And what should parents really think about in this way? Yeah, I think there are so many layers because people are constantly putting an unfair amount of pressure on the femme presenting parent. 
And those influencers really just pile on. But the strange thing is how often consumers are drawn to someone who to them looks aspirational. Oh, look, look at how pretty she is. Look at that Lululemon. And wow, she works too. She has an empire. People are drawn to that. So I've known people who started out more leaning toward body positivity, but then decided, you know what? I have bills to pay and I'm not married to this movement because I'm not really being that negatively affected by it. So I'm just going to go ahead and shift gears a little and say, I still think dieting's bad, but I'm going to teach you how to restrict. And we're going to say it's a lifestyle, but you're still teaching these kids low key that there are safe foods that you can eat anytime. And then there are other foods that mom just doesn't bring into the home. And even the, it's so interesting how capitalism finds its way everywhere and it's in all of us. So I definitely been noticing too, as people have been reflecting it back to me, some of the things that I believe without questioning that are rooted in that and unfair and erasing the experience of so many people. So this definitely isn't like, oh, I don't do this. And like everybody else needs to get it together, but it's just like a fact, the way that this produce is even presented contributes to how much waste as American consumers, we constantly make that we won't even eat a funny looking shaped fruit or vegetable that we won't even photograph something that looks really bad, but tastes delicious. And also what I've heard from other folks that was, it just was so helpful to hear this. This is why diversity is so important to have in your circles and just in general in life from kids who came from cultures that don't match Western culture, how many times they've been attacked or ridiculed for eating food that to Americans didn't smell right, didn't look right. And how Americans have no issues making rules about no fish in the microwave, you know, like that really would mess up a lot of people's lunch plans if they eat fish all the time. And who said funky fish is a problem, but like funky pork in the microwave is not a problem or funky chicken, honestly, because sometimes I don't know. Sometimes the chicken just really has a smell about it, but that's okay because we've decided that's an acceptable food here. And you get to make fun of everybody who eats food you don't recognize or food that doesn't have to look pristine because not everybody loves wasting what the planet has to offer them. I didn't even realize until I started working in food service management, how much gets thrown away because it just won't look pretty when it gets to the store. Even while we have people suffering from food insecurity in this country, we're throwing away so much quote unquote ugly food. Well, when you're only presenting that glam food on a pristine background, there's other issues there. And how do people feel who don't have the money to throw out this slightly brown looking piece of lettuce that's still perfectly edible or the banana that got bruised and it's not spoiled. It's just been bruised. Or what about all the people who don't eat plantains until they're totally black slash this person right here? I don't want to 
starchy tasting plantain. I want the sweet one and you can't really eat them till they're black. I've never seen a black plantain featured (laughs) on any of these people's feeds. Even quote unquote ethnic food is condemned by some of these feeds. And there's so many dietitians that contribute to this by giving people very rigid lists of this is healthy food, but it doesn't include any traditional foods. And so you may think, oh, well, you know, I don't want to do anything to jeopardize my children. Maybe I shouldn't be eating Callaloo, but what's, how is kale better than Callaloo? What's the big difference? You know, even why is collard grains not considered a superfood, but kale is, you know, I mean, there's a pattern here. And so frequently people who are fully participating in white supremacy culture here in the United States will go out and discover foods that other people have been eating for centuries. You know, there's a pattern with white supremacy culture. Uh, Folks like to discover stuff that has fully been discovered (laughs) and in use for (laughs) thousands of years. And, but you still see that now in a lot of these wellness influencer spaces, like, oh, it's all about SIE or it's all about something that we're going to start serving so much that people who've been eating it for their whole life now won't even be able to get it. Like I'm real salty about my avocados suddenly being popular because when I was a kid, people didn't eat avocados. That was just something that Caribbean people did, at least in the part of the United States I'm from. And now good luck. There's always a run on (laughs) the avocados. I love that. I've been dealing with some GI issues over the last year. And it's funny because I've got this app that tells me like what is okay to eat, you know, within this realm of stuff. And I'm like, well, where's the bok choy? Like, where are the Asian foods that I have? Am I allowed to eat that or not? It's not even listed. You're right that it is seen as other foods, even though they're perfectly normal vegetables in Asian culture or in other cultures. And they're just not even thought about in some of these apps that are created. So you really have to focus on like your own community and your own resources. Like you can't even just depend on the person you pay to copay to help you with that. Because I think about all these things that are great for GI health that I've seen coworkers eat that I never heard of before, but they were too Japanese or they were too Vietnamese. We're missing out if we limit ourselves to what we're being told in the doctor's office because it's fully dominated by white supremacy culture. And it's unfortunate because they don't give us a discount for their incomplete information. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. But I, you know, the other thing I want to come back to, because personally, I think I've been doing this wrong now, you know, when I heard you say, some people say, well, mommy says, these are okay foods. These are always foods. These are sometimes foods. These are like, we don't do this totally. I'm raising my hand in guilt. I've completely done that. So I'm like, things that are fresh, go for it. Refrigerator food, like go for it. The processed food, I'm like, meh. And then like sodas. But how can I think about serving both my children, but also myself more, I don't want to say the healthier foods, but just having a healthier approach to listening to our bodies and how to navigate this field of food as nourishment without creating complexes. Mm. I like the idea of finding interactive ways for the kids to really connect with the food and to really start appreciating it for what it is, which is really amazing how everything works synergistically in the body and how little people actually know about how we interact with the plant world 
and what we really need to be completely well. There's so many things that we do intuitively, just like birds and bears and all kinds of other animals that, you know, are not subjected to social media and textbooks. But when you allow your child a chance to maybe be active in gardening, be active in cooking on their own, they will be drawn to the things that are more stimulating. I've met lots of people who don't have to be told this is preferable. Just teaching yourself and teaching your kids, that it's okay to trust yourself. It's okay to trust your gut. And it's also okay to make mistakes because what you do on one day is not going to make or break you. Sometimes letting your kid do what they want at Halloween is the best lesson. Once you vomit from eating too much candy, most people aren't going to do that twice, you know, but a lot of times the kids that eat to the point of vomiting with the candy, it's because they weren't allowed candy all year. And it feels like I better get it now. That idea of scarcity really creates a fixation in most people. If you know that something's not restricted, you may lose your interest in it altogether. But I think what's really helpful is just showing the kids that you're not afraid of food and you eat what makes you feel good because there's absolutely nothing wrong with restricting based on a health condition or sensitivity. Obviously that's the right thing to do, but in other ways too, there are some foods that don't make us feel great and even highly processed foods because they tend to have so much sodium, sometimes just for the sake of preservation, nothing else. It may not satisfy you the way a fresh food might because high sodium and feeling hungry seems to go hand in hand. You would think that maybe it would just make you more thirsty, but it looks like it makes people feel more hungry. But if you're really paying attention to how you respond to food, you may realize like you don't want something boxed because you notice you don't feel satisfied later, but you feel fully satisfied when you sat down and had a meal with your family where you actually got to talk to each other and get nourished in multiple ways. And then you slowed down the eating process the way a lot of people do overseas. Like a one hour lunch break is not considered normal in a lot of places. Of course, you need more than an hour to eat in some places, not here. So really just teaching them it's okay to trust yourself, I think is important. And just trying to let the food be neutral. And of course you're the parent. So you do have final say. So if you feel like something shouldn't be in the home, because you really feel like it could compromise your child's health over time, because you feel confident it's got carcinogens in it or something. It's your call. I think it's really important for parents, especially women and femme presenting parents, not to allow themselves to take on all this responsibility for every little thing your kid is exposed to. I don't believe that parenting can be a perfect process. It's going to be a reflection of what you knew at the time. And we are always growing and evolving. And I just don't think we should internalize any guilt for changing our mind about something or evolving in relation to how we feel about food even, or how we feel about anything when it comes to the kids who said it was the parent's job 
to be perfect. Like, isn't it okay for people to continue growing and evolving? Can't your kids do that too? Like, I just don't think it's fair all this pressure that there is on moms to not break their children. Cause I don't think that's the thing I needed to hear that. Cause sometimes I feel like I'm going to break my children. And I also really appreciated what you said of like, if you really don't want your children to eat the stuff, just don't bring it into the home. But if I consider that I bring sometimes, you know, fig bars or chia seed things and they're, the pantry is stocked with snacks until this conversation, like I could feel like the rage creeping up out of my head when they would just go to the pantry for snacks and then eat so much of that stuff. And then I'm like, what about the carrots and the apples? But I realized, but I have it in the house and I could just let go of this notion that every single opportunity that they open their mouths to eat, like I don't need to feel guilty and bad about their choices because the real bad offenders I'm not bringing into the house. Right. So thank you for that permission to sort of forgive myself a little too. And it's amazing how much people love fruit that's already been cut for them. Like you don't realize all the things your mom does for you until you don't live with her anymore. (laughs) Even the concept of having to cut your own cantaloupe. I'm just like, I don't want want to do it. But if you cut the fruit for the kids and you put it where they can reach it, I mean, they might want that. It's true. I literally, I've just had this conversation with my kids because I was like, why are you not eating the fruit in your lunch bag? Like your lunchbox? what's up? And so they were like, it's just not cut. And I was like, is that really a thing? But it's a thing. And then I cut the pluot. They ate the pluot. I was like, that seems okay. But you're right. Like there, sometimes it's just, you know, thinking a little bit differently about the food, but I do also really appreciate what you said. Cause I was like mentally going through my, our snack cabinet basically. And thinking about like, cause I'm also like, what about the grapes? And I was like, how many Cheez-Its can one kid possibly eat? Uh, apparently your entire body weight of Cheez-Its. But yeah, it, it is true. That's how that product is made. It's made for you to want to keep on eating it. And a really tricky thing is that if you start eating for a reason aside from hunger, you're not going to get satisfied because you weren't hungry. What is there to satisfy? So if you just feel snacky, which I'm pretty sure kids don't say it that way, but however kids say it, they might need something that's not food, but they don't know that. And so you will eat the whole box because you were never hungry. Maybe you were bored. Maybe you feel isolated because you're sick and not being able to see your friends. It could be anything. Maybe you want more attention from a parent who legit doesn't have the capacity to listen to you regale them with your boring school stories right now. I mean, as someone who doesn't have kids, stories are boring. It is amazing to me the things that parents can listen to, but they really, they need it from you, but you can't always have the space for that. And so sometimes you don't know what you want. You just know that like you get a little dopamine hit when you eat food. So sometimes, and it sounds cheesy, but I've seen it help. And it even helps me sometimes. I've seen parents ask like, what are you feeling right now? And if the kid can figure out, like, what am I feeling right now? Sometimes that craving immediately disappears because you just needed to name it. Like you have to feel your feelings for them to go away and for you to move through them. And it's information. Like you don't have to be afraid of them, but so much of our training and socialization is 
that only some feelings are acceptable. Like you can't be angry if you're assigned female at birth, not allowed. And you can't be hurt or vulnerable or feel just generally whiny if you're assigned male at birth. So maybe you don't even want to name these feelings or you learn to not even notice them. And then suddenly you just need something. You just need to chew something. You just need something crunchy. You just need something salty. But maybe could you pause and feel your feelings and see, is there something you need right now? Or can we get used to, sometimes we feel bad and that's okay. They never last forever. These feelings keep going. And it's okay to pause and feel it so it can get going a little faster. Oh my gosh. I love that. What are you feeling right now? Yes. I am going to use that. And I want to come back to a bigger picture conversation in a minute, but can we do a quick speed round of mini questions? Is it true that sometimes if you crave sugar, it's actually that you're thirsty? I think that is true. I think that thirst can be misinterpreted like a million different ways. (laughs) I've seen people think they were really, really ill and they were dehydrated. So if you feel thirst, you probably haven't been hydrating enough for a day or two. So if you were getting ready to go do something intense and outdoorsy, like trail running or something, you should be hydrating all week. You can't just get up and try and do it that morning. Awesome. Okay. Second speed round. We talked about cutting fruits up early, but apples turn brown. What is the best way to keep apples from turning brown when you slice them? You could put lemon juice on them, but you also could teach your kids that it's okay. Like it just oxidized. It's still good. There's nothing wrong with it. It just looks bad. To me, that's the easier one. (laughs) Just eat it. I just got to work on convincing them to listen to that. But yeah, I was just like, I've tried that. They haven't bought it. But maybe if you tell them that, I'll be like, listen to this part. This is really. Well, and they also sell like sealants, you know, you'll see them in the produce. I know, right? Sarah made a face. Chemicals. (laughs) Try lemon juice. When you buy those apples that are pre-cut, they have treated them so that they won't turn. I'm going to use my splicer, like the ones that go, and you just, Oh, yeah. I have one of those too. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I like those, but I like that lemon juice. I'm going to work on that now more because my mom used to do salt water and I never got it right. Oh, oh, my dad did lemon. I remember that because it was, I it could smell the lemon from my lunchbox and Yeah. So, okay. For me, the last question on the speed round me session, unless you have some other ones, and this is probably in hindsight, a bad question because of this conversation, I was going to say, what are the best pantry snacks? But then it's a question of what does best mean? What is healthy? Like, but we commented on cheese. It's and how some of those things are made to make you want to just keep eating them. What do you have in your pantry? Oh, well, honestly, I think the best thing to have in your pantry is food that you really love. And it really delights you and hits the spot. Because if you are craving something really specific and you get it, usually you can just stop once you, you know, it hit the spot and you're over it. What's in my pantry? I have munchies in there right now, which is like Cheetos and pretzels and (laughs) all kinds of stuff. I do find that I've noticed when I'm feeling frustrated or angry, I really enjoy crunchy food. I have recently cracked a tooth for like the second time. So, you know, there's many reasons (laughs) why you need to just learn to regulate, you know, your emotions. It's so funny, all the different ways that how you're feeling affects your entire 
body. So we really can't separate how do you feel emotionally from health. You just can't. And a kid that feels loved and secure and supported is already so ahead of the game. It doesn't matter. Like you don't have to give them perfect snacks. I say that as someone who's not a parent, I'm going to go ahead and put that up. (laughs) (laughs) And before I ask my last question, Misasha, do you have a, a speed round question at all? Well, you mentioned crunchy or, you know, foods. Like I'm curious if you have like a comfort food, like if there is something that like you that is like, because I think about like, what would my ultimate meal be or like something like that? I'm curious about that for you. For me, it has to be ackee and saltfish because growing up, we didn't get to have it often because there was no such thing as an international market where I lived. And we would only get ackee if an aunt visited from Jamaica and the saltfish feels like it connects to some of like the Cuban cuisine I ate growing up and the Jamaican. And it just feels like home anytime I eat it. It's one of the few things that I was able to actually get right. You know, sometimes you make something a parent or grandparent made and you're like, why, what am I missing? Cause nobody has a recipe. They're just like, you just eyeball it. And that's one of the few things that it tastes exactly the way it used to taste. So that would be, yeah, that's my comfort meal. Awesome. I love that. And also speaks to what Misasha and I sort of joke, not joke about is that we could probably only move to cities with proximity to at least an H Mart or some sort of cultural cuisine. I think that is food is such a cornerstone, a foundation of our representation of our cultures in general. And so Yeah, I like that. Last one is for the parents. And I've wanted to talk to you about this for ages, given your work in the past with the school districts, like nutrition department. And this it's this idea of the cafeteria. And I think all of us remember our experiences in the cafeteria. I used to freaking love the refried beans and then those flat pizzas that were rectangles in the school lunch line and all that sort of stuff. But earlier you said a couple of things. One was this idea of it takes about 25 minutes for us to feel But from what I hear from my children, their entire lunch period where they sit and eat is like 15 to 20 minutes. And then they have to go outside for recess or sometimes recess is first and they shove food in their face and then they go back to the classroom. So that bothered me. Should it bother me? And then also, what else do you know about for those of us who have kids or who care about kids? What do we need to know about school and food? Mm. I think that definitely should bother you. That's like one of my peeves. I used to work in public health and now I actually am still working for a school system. Everybody get the book so we can rectify that. Uh, (laughs) One of the things I think we need to know is that unfortunately, the way things run in the grown-up world, things don't get changed until people are motivated like monetarily to change something or by an actual law, even the fact that you have an eight hour workday that you can't send kids to coal mines anymore. Nobody woke up one day and decided benevolently, like we should stop. Like child labor is not good. You know, people fought for that. You push for that direct action, being involved in your school district, knowing who is on the wellness policy council. So when the healthy hunger free kids act passed, which I want to say was 2004. I hope that's true. That is part of the legislation. So like when I was a kid, that was 
obviously before then, there was a brief period of time when you could use ketchup as part of the meal pattern, because at that time they were tracking individual nutrients. So they were like, how much vitamin C do the kids get? Blah, blah, blah. Now they're tracking whole foods. So you're looking at serving only whole grains, also serving vegetables, but a variety of vegetables. So having to serve red, orange vegetables, having to serve green leafy vegetables, having a variety, not just being able to serve French fries every week, which potatoes are a vegetable, but you know, there are other vegetables out there, but the wellness policy is something that came with all those other changes. And part of it is to involve the community, which means involve parents, involve other people who have a vested interest in child health and child wellness. So that could be somebody from the health department could be part of that. Somebody from the extension office, like the agricultural part of a nearby university could be part of that. But looking for people who want to participate, sometimes it's like pulling chicken's teeth. And there are so many parents who don't know what's being served in the school, but when they're directors who really want to hear from parents, you would be amazed in a lot of cases how much people would change just because you, an individual parent said so, who shows up at the wellness policy meetings. And a lot of people are doing these remotely now. And I'm sure there are people who haven't been able to get a parent to show up. You probably could show up and affect massive change. But the issue with the amount of time the kids actually have to eat, this really troubles me. But the thing is, the educators want as many minutes in the classroom as they can get. And the people who are deciding how much time the kids have to eat are not the ones who are mainly concerned about nutrition. So people are constantly going to DC and advocating for the kids to have like a set mandate about how much time they have to eat and about having recess before lunch rather than after, but people don't want to give. So there are all these different adults who have different objectives in mind. So the educators are thinking about class time hours and how much content they want to cover. And the people who are in nutrition are thinking about the fact that some kids do not eat at all once they leave school and they should have time to eat and really digest their food rather than it being this harried experience, which just adds to all of the issues they're going to have to work through as adults around food and feeling like it's okay to just eat enough to be satisfied versus if I don't eat it now, when will I eat again, which is a lot of people's situation. So it's the different objectives that are at odds. So it's really important to hear directly from the parents and to know that they have a vested interest and to pressure all these different people that are working in their own silos to work together, thinking about the whole child, not just the child's physical body, not just the child's access to education, all of it. I love that. Thank you. Is there anything else that we haven't asked that you want to talk about? You know, I would like for everybody to know that even if a book is not targeted at you, it doesn't mean it wouldn't be really beneficial for you to read as well. So if you 
are used to reading things that are centered on straight people, centered on white people, reading something that's not centered that way can be really helpful because it may help you see what assumptions are made when people make certain statements that just don't apply to everyone. And having the experience of reading something and looking for what does apply to me is an experience that all people of color already have, and it won't kill you. You shouldn't have to do it 24 seven, but it's very helpful to occasionally see things through someone else's lens. And as far as what I also would like to get to, I would love to know from you as people who are leading the way with difficult conversations what it has been like finding that balance in your own life of managing what's worth the effort, how to find the energy to keep going, how to accept that no matter what you do, if you say anything meaningful or significant, somebody's going to hate you for it. And how do you not get like caught up on the negative feedback and continue pushing? Because I've seen a lot, what's troubled me the most is seeing negative feedback from other people that I respect and I thought were in alignment with me, not attacking my work because it's not out there yet, but attacking other people's work that I also love. And it's like, oh, it's not good enough. You missed a spot. How do you deal with all of those things? I think I just asked six questions at once. I'm like, Misasha is my secret superpower person that I go to. And I think having a partner in crime for me has been invaluable because I am prone to be more sensitive to that sort of feedback. And when I get those hits, I'm like, okay, so is this going to be something that we need to do something about? Or is this one of those things where, and, and Misasha taught me this, you know, we can respectfully give an opposing viewpoint if people seemingly want to engage in a conversation or offer feedback we can do one round of tries, but if what they really want is to prove their point and make us like, and just have an argument for argument's sake, Misasha taught me that it's okay to disengage. Like, especially when things are done electronically, we're not necessarily going to have everybody see the world through our viewpoint, right? Some people don't want to have heart-led conversations. They don't want to get along. They don't, they want perfection. They want, you know, like you said, in some of your works to pick the holes apart and say, this isn't good enough when, yeah, that, that may or may not be true, but it's something that is out there and we all have our voices and we all have our roles to play in changing and moving the needle. And so it's okay to reflect and say, this part is our lane. We've got our lane. We're going to be confident in our lane and to some degree, choose what feedback we're going to let through the the walls and the boundaries to shift. And what we're going to say is like, you know what, for example, before our book was out, people called us racist for having a book called Dear White Women. And we're like, okay, that's not true. Like, I mean, I'm not saying we're not racist and air quotes, like (laughs) in that whole conversation, but naming whiteness is not being racist. It's naming a race, just like you would black or Asian or whatever. And and there's always going to be people out there. And so to understand that for me has been super helpful because it is scary to put yourself out there. And it was scary in this way because I want to do good. I want to help. And to have that reality that some people don't like it, it sort of hurts. Yeah. I think first of all, it's a great question because it, it is something that I probably didn't think about as fully sort of really transitioning into this work and out of, you know, like sort of the more structured legal work. But I do think having a partner is invaluable because we can constantly sort of text each other about, you know, and I guess technology, a partner plus technology is helpful because you can constantly sort of check in with each other and make sure that 
you know, where we need to have boundaries, we have those boundaries. And for me, that's been particularly difficult in some ways, even though I think Sarah made it sound like I am this like grand mastermind of certain things. I think I'm innately sort of uh, was raised, right? A people pleaser. So I would like everyone to be happy, right? And which is also ironic because I was a litigator for so long that like that was all about confrontation, but that was making me even more so outside of that, want people to get along and want to be a consensus builder. And this is not a consensus building exercise in some ways, right? There sometimes... There is no opposing view, unlike what Texas has said, right, about the Holocaust or anything else, right? You just, there aren't opposing arguments. And sometimes people just want to have their voices be heard and it's not worth engaging in. And that, I think the energy in which you could be continually engaging with people, that is detracting from the energy that, you know, we all need to do this work. I think in this way, it's also made me a little more introverted than my normal introverted self. So I am finding, especially now that we have this book out and it's been a lot of a press fire hose, right? That I can't wait to hear your experience with that too, that I'm definitely like, I need a quiet corner to be in, to have those moments to regroup, to come back and be able to have these conversations in a more productive way for everyone, right? And to really give that energy that is necessary because it is, it takes a lot of energy to have uncomfortable conversations because when you're sitting in that discomfort and especially for so many people, that discomfort has been something to be avoided because life has been pretty comfortable on various different levels, not always the same level, right? It's been comfortable. So yeah, it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but I loved it. That's really helpful though, because I feel like I've seen energy shifts and how much I might want to put into one-to-one explaining things for people. So have you had any pushback in real life that you're like, um, no, I'm not doing this. I don't have the space for it. I think, you know, sometimes within my family or, you know, people close to me where I think there's still a lot of defensiveness, right? Still a lot of questions around, you know, why it's called Dear White Women, why, you know, we put ourselves out there in certain ways, like, isn't this risky for us? I think that those are conversations that I would have been more like fully willing to like engage in and go all in before maybe, but now it's tougher to sort of have what I feel to be conversations that we've already had or conversations that, you know, aren't actually moving us any closer to having some sort of understanding, if that makes sense. So those are the conversations that I tend to cut off now. And I think about this also like heading into the holiday season, right? Because we now, especially may all of us as a society too, maybe, you know, in those zones of uncomfortable conversations and ones that we shouldn't be engaging in sometimes out of our own, out of, as a form of self-care. Yeah. I think what I heard you say, Sasha, was a little bit of like less energy justifying what we're doing and more energy just spent interrupting unhealthy. Like if someone says a racist comment, if someone makes an off-color joke, I will interrupt those, but I don't need to explain to anyone anymore why I'm doing what I'm doing. I feel having done it now for long enough that I'm in a zone of confidence where I know I am on my purpose in my zone. And so I don't want to spend any end of that energy justifying why I am who I am anymore. Oh, I love that. Did it take a long time to get to that point? Probably. Yeah. I feel like, and you know, 
I felt like I was always told as you get older, you get more confident just with everything, with your body, with your decisions, with everything. I have found that to be true, though. I felt like I felt like when I stopped having to justify it, I don't know which came first. I got confident or I just stopped and then I became more confident. But I do know that anytime, you know, when I was doing other stuff in the past, I was more shaky with my own decisions. I know by listening to like my brain and my body, like this is what I'm supposed to do. And so it took a while to get here because I don't think, I mean, even when we started podcasting, I think that after like the 10th episode or something, I'm like, wait, we're podcasters. Like, when are you allowed to call yourself that? Right now I'm like, I said something and I was a podcaster. My kid's like, you're an author too. And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. We have a book now, you know, labels. I have a weird relationship with labels, but I think when you own them with confidence, because they accurately depict who you want to be, then it's kind of this shining, like pride badge where I'm just like, I'm good. Like, this is how I am. And I'm okay with that. Take it or leave it. Oh, that is beautiful. And you said author, do you feel more like an author than a writer? Because I've heard that distinction that a writer feels like they have to be writing and an author could be someone who had an important message and they did the work, they did the research. I mean, your book is a serious read. That looks like it represents so many hours of labor. (laughs) It's so much work to clearly get an idea out there in a way that can be understood by most. There's no way to write a sentence in a way that no one will misread it, but you can write it in such a way that it will be understood by most. But that takes a tremendous amount of time. And I just don't think I really fully understood how much labor I was looking at at the library or on a bookshelf. Like it isn't even the labor of the authors. It's like a whole team of people. It is. And it's a great exercise in trusting others to also be on board with creating, helping you create the best, most powerful message that you can create. One of my kids is a writer. She like cannot stop herself and writes prolifically. So when you said that in terms of the different definitions, I was like, oh no, I'm an author. Like I do not have this compelling need to express myself in writing or, or in any way like that, but it was, this was a very important message for us to get out. And I felt really good about being able to put the time, energy resources to getting it out. So yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm excited for your book. Tell us where we can find you. So if you visit my website, that's probably the easiest, daliakinsey.com, and you'll see the hyperlink for the book. And it's going to be available all over the place, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere. And whether or not you are a queer person of color or whether you're someone who is working on intersectionality at your company and your book club, I really recommend it. I have not seen anyone else tackle these themes. And if you're in public health at all, I think it's really important for us all to look at the role that racism and discrimination or othering of any kind has in deteriorating human health and how much of a disservice are we doing when we keep telling people that they should focus on restrictive eating rather than having community, having support, having somewhere you can go and just be and having that time to recover. So many times when folks of color get together, there is external criticism and their comments, or it could even be dangerous at risk of being harassed for loitering when you're really just trying to have community and space with other people of color. 
but it is a fundamental part of recovering from the damage that systemic oppression does to the body is having that recovery time with people who accept you as a full human being. I love it. Thank you. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news. We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.